Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. To prep you for uh, a bit for why Phyllis is here, um, you need to know a little bit about my life uh, and a little bit more about this church. And let me just take a couple of minutes to say, say this. Raised in an exclusivistic um, little Pentecostal world, a lot of you come from denominations that were rather exclusivistic, um, I was raised amongst a wonderful, wonderful group of people who, though their theology may have been exclusivistic, their hearts were not. They were a marvelous group of people that I look back on fondly and remember them. Bobby, you grew up in that group of people, and a lot of what we learned there we still carry with us today. The narrowness of some of their theology was not really reflected in their hearts. They were wonderful people, like the denominations that you come from. They were wonderful people within the history of God's church who were maybe too narrow in their vision of church history, but their hearts were warm and they were doing the best with what they had from where they come from. Now, within that little movement, I was a part of a family who had been in that for four or five generations, and my parents were one of the first generations uh, brought up in the 50s, 60s, 70s. My parents were more open-minded people. And within the constraints of that little movement, my mom and dad were not rebels without a cause or dissidents, but they always pressed the questions. My mom was the woman who would, to try to be consistent with her own heart, would trim her hair. And this sounds funny, but it wasn't funny. She would get taken off of the organ, and she couldn't play because she would find the liberty to trim her hair. Uh, My dad would coach a little league baseball team and was always, he was kind of always the rebel that was fodder for the evangelists when they came through to try to get some people to the altar. But my, my folks opened me to better ideas yet within that movement because that was our tribe. Just like you were raised in the tribe, that was our tribe. We didn't know where else to go, so we stayed there, but my mom and dad gave us at least this sense of the capacity to think outside of the box and maybe challenge ideas. Again, not dissidents without a cause or rebels without a cause, but they gave us that capacity. And so being, I was fortunate enough to have mom and dad. Dad's here today, and I wanted to say that for him because sometime my parents reflect back on those times and think they did something wrong, and they didn't do anything wrong. They lived within the world just like you did in your little world. Um, when I was 16, called to preach a Methodist neighbor lady, somewhere around, I, I suppose I was 18, 19, a Methodist neighbor lady slipped me a book by an author named Max Licato. This would have been about 1987. It was Max's first book, a little white self-published book called On the Anvil. No hardback editions, just printed somewhere in Brazil where he was a missionary. Now, within our movement, Literature written by somebody outside of our denomination was considered propaganda and contraband. It was called external literature, and unseasoned preachers like me were not supposed to read it because it might lead us astray. I read that book in a closet, and I began to wrestle with how somebody who was lost could write so provocatively about Jesus and move my heart. By the time the elders got a hold of me and found out I was reading the literature, their answer, Brian, was that, well, you know, maybe he's saying good stuff, but God used a, they said, God used a jackass in the Old Testament. He can use one in the New Testament to speak through. That's biblical, right? And that was their answer, but it didn't suffice. And what I did was, and this leads to Phyllis, 30 years later, in the absence of having beyond my own parents in the absence of having pastors, bishops, who I fully trusted and who were able to lead me on that spiritual journey, I, through the publishing industry, found another set of bishops and elders and pastors, and I was literarily pastored. And it's not what I would have chosen, and I look back and I miss having those men and women over me in the Lord that I can reflect back. Until I met L.H. Hardwick at 27, I never had that. But I was literarily pastored, and I, I came very early 
to an important idea, and I don't know how I ascertained this, but I understood very early that if you read somebody who moves you, Mary, check the back of the book, read their bibliography, and find out who moved them. And I bibliographied my way upstream. I bibliographied my way out of a little bog that I grew up in that we called the ocean. But through streams and fords and tributaries and rivers, I swam, led and guided. Lakato led me to Swindoll, Swindoll led me to Stanley, Stanley led me to MacArthur, MacArthur led me to Piper and a whole world of evangelical authors that were supposedly not saved in our camp opened my mind. I finally was led to an author named Philip Yancey and it was Philip Yancey's bibliography that really opened a new world to me. They had all been tributaries before leading to a bigger stream, ultimately to a river. Yancey was the river that led me out to the ocean called the body of Christ. Orthodox and Catholic, Presbyterian and Pentecostal, broad in its scope, liberal and conservative, people who called Christ Lord. And it was Yancey that led me, this little Wesleyan Pentecostal boy, out into that ocean. And through Yancey, I met C.S. Lewis and Sheldon Vanaken. And through Yancey, I met Frederick Beekner and Henry Nowen and Madeline L'Engle. And ultimately, they led me to theological sources like Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich and Karl Barth, and then back to more original sources, primary sources like Origen and Augustine and Aquinas and Anselm, and all that was happening by myself quietly apart from my denomination and the closet of my life. I understood that if you really want to know what somebody believes, don't read what they write. Check out their bibliography because ultimately who people read tell you more about them than even what they write. And I bibliographied my, my way out, J.D., and I found these people. We had Philip Yancey first in this speaker series because as an interdenominational church, we do need covering attachment and some sense of credible connection to the broader body. And so it was not by accident that in this speaker series that we're going to be doing every three months ad infinitum, hopefully not ad nauseum. We're just going to keep doing it. It was not by coincidence that Philip Yancey was the first one here. And it was an honor for me to tell him that story. And I stood with him in my little green room back there, and I stood him up in front of my 150 most influential books, and I said, this is because of you. And I saw him scan the three or four shelves of my 150 most influential books, and he looked at me curiously, and he said, where's mine? <laughs> and I said, yours are at home but it was your bibliography and it was your open heart and the bridge that you allowed me to cross of your life and herein, and he understood. It's not strange that the second person we would be having in this speaker series, Phyllis Tickle, because Phyllis has had also afar, literally, what a gratifying thing it must be to meet people and say all that time, all those miles between, and there was somebody I didn't even know whose life I helped shape, who helped shape other people's lives. So from Lucy, Tennessee, about 35 miles northeast of Memphis, where she lives with her husband, mother of seven, great historian, tremendous thinking person. I don't know anyone within the church today that I feel like has more of a finger on the pulse of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world and the church today, and a better working grasp, practical working grasp that can be dispensed to lay people like us of the history of the church and this movement called Christian than Phyllis Tickle. So without further ado, forgive me for that long introduction, but I want you to understand the magnitude of a day like this. Would you welcome Phyllis Tickle to our platform? once again. Thank you. You know, I enjoy this part, don't you? Okay, good. <laughs> no, it's not. It's I'm 80, but I'm not too old to keep trying, you know? And a good-looking man, hey, grab with any. You know, been married to the same man for 59 years. You know, seven children. You have no idea how much imagination that takes, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> Got nothing to do with holy time and Sabbath, but anyway, after an intro like that, I think we should all go home and quit. I have a strange uh, 
obligation that your pastor laid on me. I, I am so glad to be here, by the way. I don't get to do this very often. I don't get to do many uh, congregations, and especially on Sunday, uh, and not preach. I mean, it's wonderful. So I've been looking forward to it because you all are a beautiful example of what we're going to be talking about, which is emergence Christianity, G-E-N-C-E. This is an emergence Christian church, whether you knew that or not, uh, you are. But the obligation that he has now laid upon me is that I have to do to that right now what I did an hour and a half ago and I wasn't listening an hour and a half ago so I'm not sure what I said uh, but what he says is that at five o'clock the early service and you guys we all have to end up at the same place may the good Lord help us I don't know whether we will or not but anyway uh, he Stan is right we live in really peculiar times I mean you know that. You didn't have to get up and come in here to be told we live in odd times. I mean, if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Um, that, um, you know, everything in our lives is changing. Forget religion. Will you just park religion for a minute uh, and just think about your life, period. Um, it, it's 100 years ago, in 1900, there were only 8,000 automobiles in this whole country. There are 8,000 in the parking lot out here, you know? <laughs> There's only 144 miles of paved road the size of an average Walmart parking lot, right? That was all there was. Um, Euro-Caucasian uh, Euro males didn't live beyond 49 years of age. So there was no life insurance because nobody lived long enough to put money into it to make it work. It just didn't happen. Um, you know, thing after thing. Did you know that now the average American lives at least 26 miles away from where he or she was born? Why does that matter? It means you've lost contact with grandma. Thank God for some small, no. Um, but, but you don't have to go to grandma's house after you finish here, right? And when we lose grandma, whether you like it or not, we have lost a real treasure. Because in the old days, when we all lived in the village and stayed there, you went to grandma's house after service, right? And you had that dreadful fried chicken, the same fried chicken every week, fried in the same grease from the week before. I've been there and done that. I am 80. I hate that. But what happened? When you lose grandma, you lose a conservatory effect. You really do. Because if you will remember hearing your folks talk about it, when the, we were sitting down for the fried chicken, and she says to Johnny, Johnny, what did you learn in church today? And Johnny has to know, and he has to belly up. Otherwise, there will be all hell after lunch, you know. <laughs> the worst thing is if Johnny says, we didn't go today, Grandma, and then Big John catches all kinds of hell for the rest of the week. What do you mean you didn't take my grandson to church? That conservatory effect is gone. The average American right now, we'll have at least five different jobs. I'm not talking about promotions. I'm talking about five different jobs in his or her working lifetime. That's a huge upheaval, right? This, this last year, we downloaded almost 14 billion iTunes. Now, there are two things about that. In 2000, we didn't download any because there weren't iTunes. And the other thing is, Who's, what fool is listening to almost 14 billion iTunes, you know? What in the world do we think we're doing? What is this all about? Wikipedia is more accurate than Britannica. Doesn't that throw you for a loop? It should. I can prove it statistically. It, why is Wikipedia more accurate? Because there are all kinds of fools fooling with it all day long, like this, right? You know, adding to it, changing it, refining it. It's how it is. It's how it is, you know? The, one, some of them aren't, aren't funny. Year before last, I don't have the figures for 13, but in 12, almost 50, right at 50% of the children born to women under 50 years of age were born out of wedlock in this country deliberately, which means she wants the kid and not the nuisance, and it's a position I understand. <laughs> you know. but, but it's a sociological shift. Right? It's a total change in how we do business. And some of them are scary. In 12, since I'm hung on 12 for some reason, in 12, the Great China Brain Project, which you may never have heard of, and you can live a happy life without hearing of it, you, not the effects of it, though, because they're a big part of your life. The Great China Brain Project, which is owned by the Chinese government, our government, and IBM. I would love to see the contract that makes that work, but it's, it's owned by the three of them. Um, in 10... 
the Great China Brain Project, which is a computer, broke the petaflap. A petaflap, which I have no conception of, other I can tell you what it is. A petaflap means that one computer does a quadrillion procedures correctly in one second. In 12, just to show off, they did 12 petaflaps. 12 quadrillion procedures accurately with one computer in one second. Now the truth of that is, you and I, if we wired every one of us, if we wired everybody in Franklin, if we wired everybody in the Nashville area together, would not have the computing or thinking power of that machine that we have created. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? Every single thing has changed. Everything about your grandfather, my grandfather, certainly your great-grandfather, could no more live in the world that we live in right now than a man in the moon. When he, left, when he walked out of this building, he wouldn't know what to do with that thing out there that you're going to go home in. And even if he did know what to do with it and turned it on, some fool woman would start talking out from under the hood in a British accent saying, turn veer right in 80 yards. He didn't want to merge right, you know? <laughs> Nor can he figure out where the hell she is. Uh, you know? <laughs> it, it's so hard as you go through it, but in essence, the truth of it is, those of us under 40 belong in a society that's entirely different from the society of those of us who are over 40. And those of us over 40 are in many ways immigrants now into a new world. Those born 40 and under, those born cannot change the fact that they are citizens of what is being called the great emergence. They were born in it, they have its sensibilities, they have its understandings. Those of us over 40 are still living in it, but we don't have the same easy access. Nonetheless, we're sharing a common world, and I just used a word. I said the great emergence, because that's what we're living in. It's, called, it's the most unfortunate name it could ever have been given. Somebody was, I don't know, it was given by scientists, and those of you who are in physical science will be aware that we're talking about emergence theory, and we may get to that at 5 o'clock tonight, I don't know. But right now, it's called the great emergence. Now, I'm an Episcopalian. Um, I uh, was reared Presbyterian, and uh, my, my father was uh, reared rural Methodist, and my mother was reared Southern Baptist strictly, corseted Southern Baptist. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And since they wanted to marry and couldn't figure it out, they went together and became uh, Presbyterians, which seems to have worked very well. But like all adult converts, my father was the greatest Presbyterian since John Calvin. I mean, he believed that stuff right down. So I had 17 years of being a Presbyterian, for which I'm enormously grateful because the Presbyterians know how to teach Bible, and I'm being dead serious now. They truly do know how to teach Bible. And most of what I know about Bible, I learned in those first 17 years as a Presbyterian. But I went off to college and saw my first set of red doors and smelled that incense and looked at that guy in that cute long skirt, and I said, God, I'm home. Uh, and, you know, I, I have been an Anglican ever Ever since. Now, we Anglicans, unlike those of you who come from, uh, who are not Roman or, or well, Methodist and Lutheran too, we have uh, bishops, which is uh, misfortune in some cases, but uh, it's all right in some others. Um, and one of my favorites is a man named Mark Dyer. He now teaches at Virginia Theological Seminary, which is for the Episcopal Church in the United States, probably the premier seminary. He laid aside the episcopacy, as a matter of fact, to begin to teach there, to begin to teach emergence theory and, and emergence Christianity, uh, and, which is his area of expertise. But some 20 years ago, Mark said to an audience, and it's been quoted a thousand times since, I know I've quoted it a thousand times probably. Mark said, if you want to know what's happening to the church right now, you need to understand that about every 500 years, we decide to have a giant rummage sale, and we're having one. And he's absolutely right. We are having a major rummage sale. Now, he goes on to say, rummage sales aren't necessarily bad things. We have to understand this is not a pejorative. They're not necessarily bad things. For one thing, you get to get all your junk and sell it to somebody who used to be your friend, which is a really good thing. Uh, you also, but, but he said, you know, you not only clean up your house, but you also begin to find, and we must remember this, we begin to find treasures that we didn't know we had, that we had forgotten about. And then he laughs and tells the story of Uncle Otto, and I always tell it too. 
which is that Uncle Otto was your great-grandma's baby boy. He was her baby boy when he died single, living at her house at age 62. He was still her baby boy. Uh, we all know Uncle Otto, right? We have an Uncle Otto in our family tree somewhere. But because he was the favorite, she had his picture hanging up over the mantel. And because you were her favorite great-grandchild, and grandmama didn't have a whole lot to leave when she died, because you were her favorite, she willed you Uncle Otto, and you could hardly contain your enthusiasm. <laughs> so after she was, you know, in the ground and cooled off, you carried Uncle Otto upstairs, and you put him in the attic, face against the wall, and you forgot him. Twenty years later, here comes the rummage sale, and you're up there finding out what you can put in the rummage sale. And there's Uncle Otto still looking at the attic wall. And a light goes off in your head, and you go down to the kitchen, and you get the butcher knife, and you go zip, 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 zip. An antique frame worth $500 easy on eBay, right? <laughs> When, when Stan talks about having found Origen and Irenaeus and, and John Chrysostom, he's talking about the frames. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about going back to the beauties of what was and what we had forgotten. And so Mark's point is uh, that a, a rummage sale, while it is sometimes upsetting to us, and it is upsetting, I think, to run through your lives probably, your religious lives, have felt a degree of, of uneasiness. Mine certainly has. As we have passed through this, they're not bad things. They're not things we should be afraid of. We just need to be informed about what's going on and why, why it's happening. And so, accordingly, uh, he asks us to remember that it's not just the church that's going through this. Now, I sometimes say to audiences, this is an equal offense opportunity, which is to say I'm probably about to offend you a little bit. Religion, religion is a, has a sociological function. Religion is a sociological construct. It is constructed within the context of the society in which it exists. I did not say that religion is not a theological reality, not a divine one. I didn't say that. I absolutely, you can tell me that your faith is absolutely, totally a religious experience, and I'm going to agree with you. You can even tell me that your faith and the one with whom you have mated it, the one with whom you worship, is, is truly just a theological and a religious experience, and I will believe you. And then when you begin to say, but it's not in any way contextualized, I'll say, mm -mm, you're wrong. It is contextualized. Religion always has to exist within a context. Now, I'll let you get away with it if, with just two of you. But for sure, by the time the three of you, by the time the three of you get together, you've got a Baptist church. You know that anyway, right? <laughs> I mean, what do you want here? It, it has to be religion first and foremost has an obligation to the society in which it lives to answer a very basic question. What is the meaning of all of this? Life is too hard if we don't have an answer to that question. What is the meaning of all this? What is the good? What is the right in this life? Who, who can define the good? Tell us how now shall we live? The question is usually asked that way. How now shall we live? And it's religion's function to answer that question. Now, it has all kinds of other functions, but its prime function from a sociological point of view is to answer that question. And it can only answer it, hear me well, it can only answer it in the language and the context of the people who are asking the question and hearing the answers. It cannot use a vocabulary. You cannot go to Africa as a missionary and speak British English. It won't work. You cannot go... It, religion has to, and so, when we have a rummage sale, what happens is that the language begins to change to meet a new thing. Now, what Mark Dyer also says is, we have to be really clear about the fact, it's not just the church, as I said, it's not just the church. Every single thing changes, and the church has to accommodate its message to fit those changes, not, not to curry their favor, but in order to carry the message of Jesus Christ into that new way of being, in a language that will be heard and in, in a context that will be shared in every way. And so it is the business of those of us who live in a time of upheaval like this to remember that that's what we're here to do. And 
Every 500 years, more or less, he's absolutely right. Every 500 years, we go through a giant whoopee. If you want to call it a rummage sale, okay. If you want to call it a tsunami, I don't care what you call it. But it's a giant whoopee every 500 years. And you know it as well as I do. You may not have thought about it. Ours is the great emergence because we're in the 21st century. Nobody knows why this happens, by the way. And there's nothing that says it has to happen forever. It's just that it's always happened, okay? Uh, and and it, you're a fool. It, history is not prescriptive, but it sure is descriptive. Uh, and so if you go back 500 years from where we are right now, you hit the 16th century, right? And the 16th century gives us the Great Reformation, of course it does, of course it does. You go back 500 years from the Great Reformation and you hit the 11th century and it gives us the great schism or schism according to where your mama grew up and taught you to say it, but it's the same thing, that's right. If you go back 500 years from the 11th century, you hit the 6th century and it gives you the great decline and fall. And if you go back 500 years from the 6th century, you hit the 1st century, and it gives you either the great transformation or the great transition. Scholars use both terms. But whatever it is, that was a time that was so dramatic in its impact. Not only does it give us Christianity, but it was so dramatic that the whole world begins to change its way of dating. It dates from that time. Now, if there were a rabbi in the room, he or she would rise up and say, but if you go, it's not a Christian thing you're talking about. It's a Judeo-Christian thing. That is to say, if you go back 500 years from the first century, you hit the fall of the destruction, if you will, of the first temple. You hit the Babylonian, the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of the first temple, the building of the second temple. And if you go back 500 years from that, you hit the end of the age of judges and the beginning of the Davidic dynasty out of which Meshua is to come. And so they would argue, it is a Judeo-Christian phenomenon. I am not in any way informed about Islamic history. Uh, I, I'm not proud of that. I just confess that, lest I appear to be something I'm not. I don't know. But I have been interrupted, I know, three or four times uh, in, in public meetings, not in church meetings, in public meetings by a good-natured iman who will say, you're not talking about a Judeo-Christian phenomenon. You're talking about an Abrahamic phenomenon. And they will then go on and argue that, that Islam is about 650 years younger than Christianity. But if you begin with 650 of the common era, every 500 years you will see Islam going through the same thing. By 650, the prophet is dead and Jerusalem has fallen. But it's 650 before you can say there really is a religion here. And from then on, every five, and then they will go on and argue. If you look, the 500 year pattern is there. And where that takes you is that right now, Islam is in a, in a situation very analogous to what we were going through in the late 14th and 15th century as we began to fight our way into the Reformation. And they now are speaking of two men who they think are, will be Martin Luther's, and they're using those terms, Martin Luther's for Islam when all of this is over. So it gives a different perspective on what's happening in the world right now. Anyway, every 500 years, we go through one of these things. Um, and when we do, every single thing changes. I want to say again, it's not, if you will forget about religion, for, let's look at the Reformation. The Reformation is much more familiar than any of the others. If you went to church school, you're fouled up already. But if you went to, <laughs> forget it, it won't work. But yes, guilty. If you went to secular high school, somewhere around the 10th grade, late ninth, somewhere, they taught you the Reformation, right? And they said to you, it is the coming of the nation state. Whole different change in how the world does business. It's the coming of individualization and individualism in thinking. It is the coming of the creation of capitalism. It is the establishment of the middle class. It's the birth of humanism out of, out of which will come uh, the Renaissance in every way. And by the way, it brought us Protestant Christianity, which is the exact way we ought to be looking at it. Every single thing changed economically, sociologically, politically. It doesn't domestically. Everything changed, and Christianity had to develop a new expression of itself to accommodate to those changes now, I don't want to offend any of... Well, I don't mind offending you if I know I'm going to do it and can enjoy anticipating it. But so the, otherwise, I, I, don't, I don't want to offend you right now because it's gratis and I don't get any kick out of it. But it, if you're honest and you look, even if you're Roman Catholic, if you look at Protestantism, it is deeply, deeply middle class. Is it not? Be honest. Of course it is. It's a middle class in, in every way. 
It is heavily capitalistic, is it not? I don't know how many Protestant clergy have said to me, the only thing I didn't learn in seminary that I really need is how to run a small business because, damn it, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is deeply institutional, isn't it? Look at the hospitals and the, and, and the church buildings and the universities around us right now. Where do they come from? They came from Protestants, right? You know, it, all, all of those things. The characteristics that shaped the Reformation, shaped the Christianity, that came up to talk to it. Now, you can look at this as heresy if you want to, or you can look at it, I think, much more soberly uh, and, and historically, which is to say that Protestantism, when, when Protestantism came along, it didn't destroy the Roman Catholic Church at all. Roman Catholicism, indeed, actually grew. Protestantism didn't destroy it in any way. What Protestantism did, and I think it helps if you think of Christianity as a river, Protestantism became a new tributary into that river. And as a result of it, it spread over the world. Christianity grew in size. I've often said you know, that if Roman Catholics had been as neurotic about statistics 500 years ago as we are right now, they would have shot the Pope, burned the Vatican, and moved to China simply because there was nothing to make Protestants out of except Roman Catholics, okay? So the numbers went down. Makes sense, duh. In the same way, Protestant numbers are going down to emergence. And if you look at, if you look at the, from your various denominations from which you came, if you look at the figures and the numbers, everybody's hanging crepe. Oh, the Southern Baptist Convention is shrinking. Well, you know, that's true. But the kingdom of God is growing. It's growing because now we're birthing out a new form. We're bringing a new tributary. There's nothing to be afraid of, but there's no excuse for being ignorant of, of, what it's, of what's happening. So that whatever held hegemony at the time of the upheaval, whatever held pride of place, has to change its ways, clean up its act, uh, and make way for this new thing and, and learn to get on. That's all that's happening. Protestantism is having to readjust as emergence Christianity begins to take something close to the bulk uh, of people. I mean, you are all here, and this is clearly an expression of emergence Christianity. Um, and so that's what happens. Now, it would be, uh, it would be a, a real mistake, I think, I, I guess it would, uh, to just jump from here without stopping to say at, at this point that um, how to do this. Protestantism is not in any way uh, dying, and Christianity is spreading more and more. At the same time, Protestantism also has to clean up its act. I want to show you what, when the, when the Great Reformation came along, what did, what did Catholicism do? It didn't shut down. It didn't quit. It did what? It cleaned up its act, really, right? Didn't it? It did the Council of Trent. It did all of those things. Yeah, of course it did. And so it grew. But every time we go through one of these upheavals, every time we, we hit one single question, the minute something new comes up, the minute emergence comes up and joins Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Protestantism and all of this forth, the minute, now we ask the question, where now is the authority? That is to say that in every 500-year cycle, every single one of them, there is an internal cycle. That is, say, that when we go through one of these upheavals, we have about 100 years to answer the question, where now is the authority? And then for about 250 years, we all agree that that's where the authority is, even if we don't like it, but we agree. And then for 150 years, we begin to pick away at the authority that has been established until we destroy it and wake up with nothing and start all over again. The 150 years of leading up to the question, the 150 years of leading up to where now is the authority, that 150, that is called the Perry. In our case, it's the Perry emergence. In the Reformation's case, it was the, obviously the Perry Reformation or the Perry schism. That 150 more or less years of leading up to picking out and getting rid of the authority. Let's do it with Roman Catholicism very quickly. Let's go to the Great Schism. When the Great Schism happened in the 11th century, what really happened was that the church had always been governed, as you know, well, that's not true. The church for 500 years, almost 600, had been governed by church councils. Um, when there was a problem and we couldn't decide what, you know, the word of God was or whatever or how to do whatever, 
They called all the bishops together from all over the Mediterranean world. They came and they met in council and they fought for a couple of months and then the majority won and they went back and did it that way. Uh, it was called counselor Christianity. When the great schism happened and the Mediterranean world split, and it split over politics, let's be real clear, it split over politics, it split over economics, it split over intellectual inequality, and by the way, it split religiously as a result. When that split happened, then we no longer have councils. We have Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. So what are we going to do? We're going to establish Constantinople as the head of the Eastern Church and call it the Greek Orthodox, aren't we? And over here, we're going to take the Catholic Church and make it the Roman Catholic Church. And we're going to make the Pope and the Magisterium and the Curia hold all the responsibility for the Western part of Christianity, right? And that was the authority. It took us 100 years to work it out, but we had it. And for 250 years, we lived with it, and it was just lovely more or less. And then you get to the Perry Reformation, and you get to some unhappy events that the Perry Reformation is usually by scholars uh, dated from 1390. I'd like to date it a little earlier than that. I'd like to date it from 13, the 1350s when a man named John Wycliffe lived. Ever hear of Wycliffe? He translated the Bible into English. Some scholars argue it was not enough of an impact to trip it. I think they're wrong. Uh, whether they're right, I can tell you this. John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, which was an absolute no-no. It had to be in Latin. The church, you know, God spoke in Latin, in Ciceronian Latin, as a matter of fact. Uh, and you sure couldn't make it in English at all. Um, and, but uh, Wycliffe died in, 15, uh, in 1358. Um, and uh, in 1414, at the Council of Constance, uh, the church voted to dig him up and they dug him up, and they ground him up, ground up what they found, then they burned what they had ground up, and then they poured it all in the river, which I think means he really pissed somebody if he didn't do anything else. I mean, you know, <laughs> at least, you know, but whether you start the Perry Reformation there or not, or whether you start it in, in the 1390s or not, doesn't matter. By 1390, there are three armed men, Alexander Clement and uh, Urban, running around the, the south of Europe and the north of Italy, claiming that they are the Pope, that they are the appointed of God, that they have been, that it is theirs to take the chair of Peter, that they are the authority. Now, unless God's schizophrenic, two of them are wrong. There's no question about it. The other thing is that even in the dumbest uh, little village, with the dumbest serfs, nobody, you know, even the, the most illiterate, doesn't want to be raped, burned, and pillaged. They just take it personally, as a matter of fact. And so there, you begin to get unrest, and you begin to get just plain villagers saying, this can't be right. This cannot be the will of God. This cannot, not all three of them are right, and doing it this way has got to be wrong. And you begin to get the unrest that's going to lead straight up to the Reformation. And from 1390, you can see it come right on and begin by, uh, you know, by 1452, for goodness sakes, Constantinople is going to fall, right? And what are you going to get? The great influx from Constantinople, the great influx of classical writers, which we had, the Septuagint, the Greek edition of the uh, Hebrew scripture is going to come. We hadn't had that for 200 years in Western culture. It just it wasn't part of what. We've got it now. We've got it now. And so thing after thing. In 1457, it was certainly not an Anglican or a good Episcopalian. Some fool, because none of us would have ever done that, some fool took a perfectly good wine press and put paper in it instead of grapes, a mistake we would not have made. Uh, but it's the beginning. It's the beginning of the printing press, right? Uh, and what's going to happen? It's going to carry new ideas. In the same way that the internet, the internet has knocked us on our buff, the printing press knocked them on their buff. Uh, and the most interesting thing about the printing press to me is that only 7,000, we now know, only 7,000 and something or other documents were actually printed on that press between the time it was started and when Luther actually put the, the 95 on the theses, uh, theses on the door in 1517. 6,000 of them were just theologians talking to theologians, trying to figure out what was going to happen. And that never goes anywhere. It's an intellectual Cuisinart uh, of a sort that just... <laughs> <coughs> but 1,000 of them were music uh, because Luther and company we're smart enough to know that in an illiterate population, if you could take the new theology and put it to music 
and find one man in each village who could read. And most of the music was pub songs, as a matter of fact. You could, uh, you could persuade a whole country through sheer music. It has always been the music that has been the beginning of each one of these things. Every time, the music carries it. And if you don't believe that, 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 one more praise song and I'm going to kill somebody. But that, that's exactly what has carried it, right? Yeah, of course. It's the music that has carried this one into its beginning. And I'm, of course, not being serious. Uh, well, maybe I am. Whatever. <laughs> Come to think about it, maybe I am. Uh, but, but, so, so and, and you know, you get Copernicus by 1509. He's talking about the fact that we're not the center of the universe. Uh, he's smart enough not to say it too loudly until Luther takes the heat in 1517. But, uh, you know, and thing after thing is beginning to change. And the whole world is changing. And as a result, we have to have a new expression of Christianity. Now, I always stop here. Um, and and I'm not, I don't know what my emotional or spiritual or religious whatever it is, compulsion is, but... Uh, I want to go to 1492, which is in many ways the most significant part of, of the Perry Reformation for me. Because in 1492, as you know, some idiot failed west, sailed west on a, a you know, flat earth and didn't fall off the sucker, uh, which he should have. Now, you know, and I know, and all God's children know, uh, and the record shows, nobody thought the world was flat in, 15, in, in 1492. No, they, they just didn't. Uh, they had navigational things. And, and anybody watching can see, if you watch a boat long enough, it disappears this way instead of that way, uh, which means the thing's got to be. So nobody really thought that it was curved by 1492, but the church continued, the Roman church, continued to teach that it was a flat, stacked universe. Here was hell, here was the earth, and here was heaven. And they taught that. So six days a week, you knew it was curved. One day a week, you went with the flat. Uh, you know, it, it, it didn't matter because it, it, it only mattered when somebody proved beyond question that it really was round and that this was wrong. And the reason I mention this every single time is that there are letters in the archives at the Tower of London. I have not seen them. I have a friend who actually has handled them. Uh, there are letters left by people in 1493 and 94. Uh, and one of them, for instance, is by an, a gentleman who was literate, obviously, and 66 at the time. And he is weeping and mourning about what horror it is to have lived his whole life loving Jesus Christ and preparing to meet his Savior and to be with his God in eternity. And now it isn't going to happen because if the world is round, he will ascend in London, and his Lord ascended in Jerusalem, and they will never see each other in a round universe. That sounds so stupid and naive, doesn't it? So incredibly naive. But what heartbreak that the record of that should have lasted for four centuries. The point being, it's not enough to be right. It's not enough to know you're correct. It's not enough to understand where Christianity is going. It's not enough to realize that we are birthing a new stream of Christianity and the kingdom of God will spread. All those are good things, but it's not enough unless you can be right pastorally. Every time we go through one of these, somebody gets hurt. A lot of somebodies get hurt. And while they, people living with us and sharing space and time with us may not mourn the fact that the earth is indeed round instead of flat, they're mourning other things uh, that have changed as a result of the changes we are making. And, and so it is, and so it is that the Reformation came. And on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther put, you know, 95 on the door of the Church of Wittenberg. For what it's worth to you, Brian McLaurin is now called almost universally, the man who is coming here, the Martin Luther of Emergence Christianity. And the 95 Theses analog for our time is a book called A Generous Orthodoxy, uh, which he wrote and which, uh, if you've not read it, you may want to read it before, and you will see exactly what he's saying. This is the new form of Christianity and how it's happening. And there are millions of emergence Christians. You all aren't the only ones, by the way. Uh, so, but, but anyway, uh, and so uh, what we've got then is we've got uh, a, a clear, you know, statement that no more magisterium, no more curia, no more pope. So who's calling the shots? If we no longer think that the pope is infallible, 
If we no longer think that God speaks to him every night just before he goes to bed and tells him what to do the next day, if we no longer believe in this, then why are we here? Who's telling us what to do? Who's defining the good? How now shall we live? And you can feel the panic. You can watch the panic ripple through the next three or four decades. And Ruther begins to answer the question by saying, sola scriptura, scriptura sola. Only the scripture and the scripture only. And that is true, that sola means only in Latin. And he had, Luther, poor, I love Luther. Luther had five solas. He did indeed, which means he didn't get the Latin so good or he changed his mind, whatever. But anyway, the sola scriptura is the one that stuck. Now, scholar after scholar has said, and you probably have heard, that what Luther really did was take a flesh and blood pope and replace him with a paper pope. And that's a fair accusation. I don't think Luther can be blamed for what happened, though. When he says the authority is going to lie in a book, the authority is going to lie in scripture, he says it to a population that are illiterate by and large, totally illiterate, as a matter of fact. The only way it's going to work is if he can teach everybody to read and create the priesthood of all believers. Protestantism's greatest cultural gift, if you will, to society is universal literacy, simply because for it to work, they had to be able to read, and so they learned to read. And it's a bad thing to teach people to read. When you teach people to read, you invite dissidence, you invite discord, you invite multiplicity of opinions. And that's exactly what happened. And so what happened was you got two guys reading the same verse at last, and they agreed with each other. And these two guys agreed with each other, but they didn't agree with these two. Uh, and, and so, you know, we had a little difference of opinion. This guy didn't agree with any of these two, but he did agree with this one. And now we've got three. There are 39,674, I believe is the correct number, different distinguishable from each other Protestant denominations in the world today. That's what happens when you do sola scriptura. Now, what came out of sola scriptura is what we call Protestant inerrancy, for which Luther should not be blamed. What happens is when you teach people to read, then they want it to be inerrant. And so you got Protestant inerrancy. One of our bishops said to me two or three years ago with a perfectly straight face, there's nothing at all wrong with Protestant inerrancy except the Protestant part and the inerrant part. The rest is perfectly all right. Um, and and, and I, knew, I, I knew what he was saying. And so we get to our time, and we come into our time with Protestant inerrancy as a sort of overarching operative point of view, as a matter of fact. And we hit the Perry emergence. We hit the 150 years that is going to lead us to where we are. And those are years in which we are going to take down Protestant inerrancy. Whether we meant to or not, we just are. That's what's going to happen. And we're going to wake up in 2014 and not know where the authority is. That's what we're struggling with now, all of us. But for 150 years, Protestant, the, the Perry emergence is usually dated from 1842, 43, 44, uh, along in there, uh, when a man named Michael Faraday, do you watch Lost? Do you watch Lost? Faraday's on there because of this. You ever use a Bunsen burner? That's a Faraday invention. Okay. Faraday was a chemist uh, in England who began to fool with what we now call physics, though the word wasn't there then. And he began to fool with electricity and he began to fool with conductivity and gravity. And he came by 1844 to say, I can give you the formulas. I'm going to call it field theory. I can give you mathematically a description of what electricity is. I can give you mathematically a description of what conductivity is. What I'm doing and don't know I'm doing it yet is I'm inventing an electrical motor and it's going to go straight to your internet. But I didn't know that at the time. I was sitting here playing with my numbers, right? The immediate effect was what he did was he took away from the angels the ability to make the lightning. He took away from God, El, Yahweh, Zeus, whatever you want, without meaning to. There was no heresy intended here. He just gave a physical, physical explanation to things that previously to that had had a religious explanation. And when he did that, he began the process of undoing the authority that had existed. The inerrant authority begins to wilt and begins to wilt and to go away. 
And you go from Faraday to 1859, and you go to a man named Charles Darwin, right? There's a real cutie. Uh, yeah, uh, you go to that. Uh, and and, you, and you, you, can, you can trace what In between, in case you were listening, uh, we jumped a little man named Karl Marx, right? Uh, you know, who is going to do in capitalism, right? That's what he's intending to do. That's what communism, the Communist Manifesto, was supposed to do, was to undo every... Every single thing changes from 1842 right up to right now. Every single thing changes, and we have to accommodate to it religiously. Now, I don't want to go. You can you can trace change these. You can chase these uh, things by, by various cascades. You can do a political cascade. You can do an economic cascade from the 1840s straight up to 2014, or you can do military one. Military one is fun to do. You can do an aesthetic one. I want to do a sociological one very briefly uh, because I did it this morning with that group and we have to be on the same place. No, because I, I, I think probably it's the easiest to see. So I'm not going to go from Faraday to Darwin. I'm going to stop at 1855 and ask you to look with me in the four or five years from 1855 to the firing on Fort Sumner. This is what we call the years that preceded what we call the recent great unpleasantness in my part of Tennessee. I don't know what you all call it, but that's what we call it. The recent great unpleasantness. The recent great the correspondence, the correspondence between northern churchmen and southern churchmen in every single denomination in this country is fascinating. The Presbyterians have the best, in my opinion anyway, the best archive. But what is happening, and the only two, we must remember, the only two forms of, of, of Protestantism that did not sever were Anglicanism uh, and the Brethren. The Brethren were too new, and the Anglicans are generally too indifferent to, sh to shatter over something like that. But the rest ripped apart, ripped apart. The argument was, increasingly from the Southern churchmen, simply put, increasingly from the Southern churchmen, can we get rid of slavery and not call it wrong? Why? The Bible does not say thou shalt go forth and buy a human being. You know that as well as I do. But it clearly provides for the care of slaves, doesn't it? Let's be honest, doesn't it? Deuteronomy and Leviticus both provide for, right? And you can say, okay, so that's yesterday's news. Our Lord tells a couple of stories in which a slave plays a part. And he never says a word about that being a no-no. So you can say, okay, that's, you know, that's literature. And then you hit Paul and Onesimus and Philemon. You always hit Paul, don't you? I mean, it's like the eternal wall that you run up against. But yeah, he sends that man back to his master without a buy your leave, right? He sends a slave home without saying it's wrong. You can say what you want to. You can. I think Amazon now has 293 different editions of the Bible. I believe that's the figure. I haven't looked lately, but that's what. 293 different. You can change. You can change pronouns. You can adjust it, but you can't unsay the fact that the Bible admits of slavery. It doesn't say you have to do it, but it does admit of it. So the Southern churchmen said, "Can we do it and not call it wrong?" So we fought that awful war. And we did, created the mess, and now we're beginning to get over it to some extent. And we went on, and then we got near the end of the 19th century, and we hit those uppity women. Now, we've always had uppity women, but sometimes they're more uppity-er than they are at others, okay? And they began to, and by 1917 and 18 and 1919, as the First World War is over for us, and that's a fascinating thing to do, the military history of the Perry Merchant. Uh, as it's over, our women, our uppity women, began to say, you know, I'm going to own a piece of property without a male co-signature. You just watch me. I'm going to have a bank account that's in my name, not a joint name. Now, it's a fool that says that the Bible is gender equal. It isn't. I don't care how many times you change the pronouns and how many she, it's, whatever, you do with the slice you put in, the Bible is not, it's patriarchal. It just is, you know? That's a fact check. All right. And so, but there's another fact, which is that when a group of women decide they're going to get something, they're going to get it. <laughs> in my earlier days, I taught Greek literature to unwilling college freshmen, and the only one they liked was Lysistrata by Aristophanes. And the plot there is that women of... Athens wanted something, or Sparta wanted something, 
And they got together as a sisterhood and vowed that they would have it, and they would have it because they were going to cut off the supply till they got it. And it ends supper we're talking about. <laughs> it works every single time. You all are such wusses. You're pathetic. You're pathetic, you know. <laughs> but it works. So now what have we got? We've got, a, we've, we've got to accommodate. We've got to accommodate. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've got a female for my presiding bishop, as high as it gets in the Episcopal Church, and she's a knockout, please, you know? Uh, what, was what was Melissa doing up here? I mean, who gave her the authority to do that? She's female, right? You all gave her the authority. Well, because we've forgotten. We've forgotten how hard it was in the 20s to accommodate to the fact we were doing something the Bible forbid. And we continued to do that. We continued to do that. One of the, one of the and, and I'm divorced, if this is a, a normal room, uh, uh, somewhere over half of you are in a second marriage. Do you know you can't do that? Well, you can. You can, of course. Because what emergence will say, they will talk to you about Micah 6.8. Well, let me just stop and say, okay. Um, when the Second World War was over, I'll just do it. When the Second World War was over and so divorce was still a no-no, and I'm not promoting divorce. Don't, don't misunderstand. The fact I didn't have the energy to go through one doesn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> I had too many damn kids. Uh, <laughs> who also chose to have kids. I hate that. Uh, but we don't have family reunions anymore. I can't stand it. Uh, but we don't. We don't because I can't stand it. It's the absolute truth. But, <laughs> but when the Second World War was over, uh, for, the, for the first time, we didn't have the words post-traumatic um, shock. We, um, we did have shell shock from, uh, from the First World War. Uh, it was the worst battle, the worst awful experience that American men had ever had was the Second World War. It's the first time we'd ever gone and seen mass slaughter. 21 million people died, and um, many Americans watched. At least two or three million of them die. Uh, not, and uh, so some of the men who came back weren't very nice men. They had been. And in the congregation where I was a child, I was 11 at that point, um, when uh, there was this beautiful girl, this beautiful woman. I, I loved her. She was blonde and short and had the figure, you know, to die for. All the things I knew I would never be. Um, and I think that was part of it. And she had married, uh, uh, had uh, two children. One was seven and had been born before her father shipped out. And one was four and had been born two months after he shipped out. He was a nice guy. I can remember him. I can remember liking him. And then he came back, uh, he came back from that war, and you will forgive me even if it's sad, but he was the biggest son of a bitch I ever saw, and I knew that even at 11. He was mean and dangerous and scary, and she did not divorce him because that was against the word of God. It was against the word of God. She did not divorce him until the day he took the four-year-old and slung her this way, breaking the arm out through the skin, and threw her in the wall saying, little bastard, not mine. At that point, she filed for divorce. She filed for divorce to protect the child. And it was fine until the Sunday after the divorce decree was granted. And when it was granted, when it, that did happen, two of our elders, God-fearing men, no, nope, two of our elders met that woman and those two little girls out on the sidewalk and took her upstairs to the balcony so that an adulteress would not contaminate the nave and the sanctuary where we were about to have the Eucharist. It broke my heart. My heart really broke the first Sunday when we got ready to actually have communion. And those two elders went upstairs and got her and those two little girls and put them out on the street before we uncovered the plates. Lest it... Wrong, wrong. There was a bachelor in that congregation who had been disabled and had not gone to war as a result, and he, they married, and they had a child of their own. It was a very happy marriage. He became a good stepfather to those children. Everything was fine until the Sunday after the wedding. Then he, too, was met by those same elders and taken upstairs because he was an adulterer living with an adulteress. He, too, was removed with his new family before we could have communion. That seems to us unspeakable, but it's sola scriptura. It's Protestant inerrancy at perhaps its ugliest. Emergence will tell you that it is also the beginning of Micah 6 8, 
and that Micah 6.8 is the foundation stone of much of the scriptural understanding and the theology of emergence Christianity. What does the Lord thy God require of thee? That thy love, mercy, act justly, and walk humbly with your God. So Micah 6.8 the reason that we now can... Is divorce good? We've certainly paid a price for it sociologically, haven't we? We, we have. Not all divorce is good. Should it be... It has to be seen in, in relation to Micah 6.8. It just does. And then, uh, I, I'm way over time. Um, uh, let me do one more thing. May I just, so we'll be at the same place that, uh, uh, if you can bear with me, I, I will jump uh, I will jump and go to, the sociological cascade eventually ends up at the gay, lesbian, bi, and transgendered thing. And uh, I would love to do that at 5 o'clock. I do want to do one thing in between. Um, uh, Martin Marty, uh, who's probably the best, uh, or the most respected, one of the most respected religionists working in this country still, he's emeritus now, um, does this really, really well. And every time I get ready to do it, I just nearly die. But anyway, he says, and I agree, that of the things that lead up to the emergence, of the things that have led up through the peri-emergence to where we are today, nothing is more significant than the coming of the birth control pill. I think one of the reasons I don't do it well is saying seven children, with having seven children, I feel a little compromised making that position, but, but nonetheless, um, oh, but yeah, anyway. Uh, in 1962, the birth, and if you will remember time, uh, what, four or five years ago, did a feature story on the, the 50th anniversary, I think it was, uh, of the birth control. In, in 62, uh, it was formulated. In 63, it was put out for experimental use, and in 64, it was released for public use. Um, and and the, the reason that matters is not, it, the, the birth control pill didn't, it wasn't the control of fertility that made it significant religiously. What was significant was that it changes the whole nature of the American home without that ever being the intention. Up until, 19, up until 1964, you had women who were now college educated as a result of the Second World War, who were college educated, who were bright, who were able in every way, who were used to being at work now because they'd been in the, in the factories throwing rivets and doing all that. They're Rosie the Riveter's kids, and some of them are Rosie Riveter. They are perfectly capable, except they have one problem, and I hope you gentlemen will bear with me, but it's true, or you ladies even. Back in those days, now, and now we can chemically adjust the menses so it can go away for eight years and a woman can come off for a year, conceive a child and go back on and there's no menses. But back then, it, it came around. Ms. Murphy, we called her. Ms. Murphy came uh, every month. And the problem was that for about a week out of every month, a woman was not quite as mentally acute uh, as she would have been the rest of the, of the month. Um, she was what we call emotionally labile. Uh, which means don't get near her or fuss with her. She feels a little socially uh, inadequate in some ways. She's not going to break the glass ceiling. She's not going to go farther than as long as that's going on. And by when the pill is released, within six months, University of Michigan's got the data on this, within six months, women begin to say, huh, the big boss is coming from New York on Tuesday. Ms. Murphy is supposed to come Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. I can't afford to have her and him at the same time. I'll borrow three pills from next month. You women are only laughing, you older ones, because you did it. I did it too. But yeah, you know, uh, I'll borrow three, and then I will take what's left uh, after he's gone, and I will say to the doctor, please give me a new prescription and say, I dropped him in the commode or the dog ate him. You should see the dog. She's a mess. But the dog ate him, you know, <laughs> or, or, or something. Uh, and, and I'll get a new prescription and it will be all right. Uh, and it worked. And it worked. And you can watch from there on. You can watch the change in the American home, which is why it matters. This is not a blame game. It is not the fault of women. It is the fact that from that shift, the nature of the American home begins to shift dramatically because now she can go out and conquer the world because she can and she's able and she should be able to. And he can go out and conquer the world. Now, up till now, he has gone out and conquered the world and she ran the home. And he went and conquered for the sake of the home. That was what, he may have misbehaved, but it was for the sake of the home uh, that, that he was doing it. And the home was the, the sanctuary. It was the tent, to quote the Brits, who also say that we have failed to understand as Christians 
that Judeo-Christian faith has always gone tent, synagogue, temple, and it's the tent that shifts. Now what happens? She goes out to conquer the world. He goes out to conquer the world. And the two and a half children go to daycare. Why? Because that's how it is. And the first thing that happens is that the blessing stops, you know? It's not that it stops completely. It's just we don't do it in the same old way. It's really hard as hell. You should excuse me. It's hard as hell to be grateful, really grateful, divinely grateful for carry out from Papa John's. It just doesn't work. The only thing you're grateful for is that there weren't more cars in the drive-through window line, you know. So, so you shoot one up to God, but you're not really there. And the next thing that goes is the family altar. We still hear prayers. We do hear prayers, but we're hearing them. We're not altering together. And one parent is doing the laundry because somebody has to because we go to work tomorrow. And so gradually what breaks down is the transmission of the faith through a parental presence, teaching it without even meaning to, incidentally and during the normal course of, of daily life. And so we get a huge change right there. And I will leave it there, and you've been very patient beyond endurance, and we'll pick it up at 5 o'clock. I know what you're saying. What a sweet little old lady. <laughs> Five o'clock tonight. We got lots of questions for you, lady. Are you ready for them? All right, we'll let you finish your spiel and then we've got questions for you. Wasn't that incredible? Um, come back tonight at five o'clock, five o'clock. And uh, before you go, grab a book. If you got a book, come over. Uh, don't monopolize Phyllis's time or nobody will get through. But let's get our books signed by her. One more time, thank Phyllis Tickle and go get your kids.